0: this thing on
1: yesterday's price is not today's price
0: james excited to have you on the pod here glad to be here and i gotta say off the bat i am probably in the top one percent of consumers of all the content and thought leadership that nfx has come out with over the years. So I just wanted to say thank you at first and tell everybody to check that out.
1: Oh, well, you're welcome. We, uh, we love doing it and it helps us get our thoughts down and we can only invest in 0.3% of the companies we see. So this is
0: our way of helping the people we can not invest in. To jump in here, I wanted to start with a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It's the chicken or the egg problem. And you know, at the start of a marketplace, there's this inherent chicken or egg problem. And I'm wondering if in all your years investing in models that depend on network effects, what are some of the more creative ways that you've heard of founders hacking one side of this to get it off the ground?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. We've spent a lot of time. We've invested in probably, I don't know, 60, 80, 80 marketplaces over the last uh, you know 15 years. And so <clears throat> we spent a lot of time thinking about this. I've got an article online called The 19 Marketplace Tactics for Overcoming the Chicken or Egg Problem. You know, The first thing that uh, I would say is the, the way to hack the chicken or egg problem is just to get the harder side first because in most marketplaces one of the sides will just show up as long as you aggregate the other side as long as you bring them together and uh and that solves the chicken and egg problem you just have to get one side actually and then the others will just figure it out they'll show up and uh and so that's sort of the first thing to do and, and in some cases you need both in equal demand and that's but that's unusual uh, and so typically you have to figure out, you know, are you a, a, a demand side or a supply side marketplace first, and then go after the harder side and, and bring them on and then figure out a way to, to, to keep them there for the month or two months or the three months it takes to bring on the other side. Um, the other thing that we, we often s- tell people is just to find a real niche. You know, a lot of people say, well, I want to be in all of the uh, you know, last minute tourism because that's, that's the biggest market and that's what I'm going after. And in order to hire my employees, I have to tell them how big the market is. And in order to get my venture capital, I have to tell them how big the market is. But in fact, what you really wanna do is you just wanna do like scuba diving for people over 65 and get that niche going. We call that a white hot center. And then it's amazing how quickly that will bleed into other things for people over 65 or younger people who are doing scuba diving or people in different regions. Actually, starting small and very, very narrow gets you that white hot center. And uh, once you get that, you have you've, you've solved the chicken egg. And then other people can see that success and they can feel that energy inside and that you're in the faster moving water and then and then once that's there you can you can bleed out you know another one is just subsidizing the most valuable side of the market so we we talk about uber subsidizing their drivers that was something that they did a lot of people try to do that you make the supply look bigger with automation so you can now use AI and automation to actually sort of fake the supply side where you know you just have pass-throughs and you're gonna get maybe affiliate fees or something else but it appears that this is a fully populated marketplace uh, particularly on on the, on the, you know, when it's when it's equipment or, or products that you're buying versus services. So, I mean, there's lots, there's like 19 of these different tactics that we've noticed over the years. And what, I guess my favorite is probably the time constraint. Uh, we saw one of these marketplaces say, we are only open between eight and nine Pacific time for all of you to come in and make trades. And, and that meant that everybody who was interested would show up and have a big fun. They'd all show up in that first five minutes and they'd get all excited and make all these trades. And then, and then it would have a countdown to the end of the, the hour and then it would be gone. And so they never saw the liquidity problem. They never saw the chicken or egg problem because of the 60 people who were interested that they paid, you know, 10 bucks a piece to get, to get them to come, they all saw each other and there was a lot of activity and there was liquidity and there was excitement
0: and they never saw the problem. You were talking about some shortcuts. You can take at first until you get up to a certain scale. Isn't there a term for that called Flintstoning, where it looks like you're actually like driving a car, but there's legs kicking underneath to make it actually go? That's a good term. It's not one that I've ever used. And Is it a bit counterintuitive to start with the hard side? Or I guess another way of asking is most of the companies you start with gravitate towards the easy side because it is that easy?
1: Oh, absolutely. That's one of the biggest problems I have with the founders that I work with is they say, hey, we're making great progress on the demand side. But all is demand, I'm like, great, but where's your supply or vice versa. And they keep reporting to me on how well they're progressing because what they think is that these, these marketplaces are equal. It's a chicken or egg problem. Chicken and egg, they're kind of equal. So I need to get enough chickens and enough eggs. And the fact is that these marketplaces are not equal. And they can't get that out of their head because that's what they came to the business thinking. They're always telling me how proud they are of how well they're doing on the easy side. And I'm like, dude, I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it anymore. What do you mean? I can't report to you on how well we're doing. My team needs to know that you're hearing how well we're doing because they're working their butt off. And I'm like, I I don't want them working on that. We're done with that. Like, it's very hard to communicate.
0: At the outset, does a company have to choose if they are leaning more towards either the demand side or the supply side? Like, hey, we are a supply side marketplace. Like, I'm thinking of, I think Airbnb is a supply side marketplace at its heart, right? That's right. So look, I think that what happens is
1: you have an inherent lean, inherent tilt to one side or the other of the marketplace. And you have to start with the hardest side first when it's hard and it hurts you and it's painful. But then once you get it, you get transactions going, then you're going to have to start increasing demand so the supply doesn't go away. And then you start to balance it. It might be eight to one. It might be two to one. It might be one to one. And then, you know, if there's, let's say, 20 seasons to your company, you're actually going to have to change your emphasis over those 20 seasons. I mean, flying these marketplaces is a very difficult balance. Not only are you building one business, you're building two, and you have to build them in relative size to each other. So even if you have a supply side marketplace, you still
0: need a way to get the demand. I love how you said that, the seasons bit, because over time, you really do have to match the growth rates of each business because you can't have like huge arms and skinny legs in the sense that, you know, you're growing the supply side 300% year over year, but the demand side is only growing 50%. At that point, you're going to actually be a victim of your own success and create almost a liquidity gap.
1: If you're a supply side marketplace, if you get the supply and you screw up the demand a little bit, you'll survive. So in these seasons, as you move from the just don't screw up the supply side, I guess would be my point to people if it's a supply side marketplace, because you can't survive that if you screw up the supply side if it's a supply side marketplace.
0: And when you're starting out and you wanna be extremely specific, like you said, scuba diving for people over the age of sixty-five, or maybe it's uh hyper-local marketplace where you have to be there in person, which I guess that would qualify. Do you give advice that you should begin with almost like a starter city? Like, and I'll give you an example. When I was trying to start my last minute tour and activity marketplace, we started in Tampa, Florida, nothing against people in Tampa, but we didn't want to go to Miami instantly and try to figure it out on the fly and be like, wow, we just burnt a bunch of bridges in Miami. Do you think you should start with like a skew or in a place that you feel like you're safe to make mistakes or should you just go for it?
1: It's a good question. When when we start with for companies, what we typically say is you start broad and then you go narrow and then you go broad again. So at the very beginning, you 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 broaden it out to look at different skews or different geographies or different whatever to see where there's energy, to see where the, the white hot center is. And then you focus. So you go broad, narrow, broad. You focus in on that thing, whatever got traction, and you just pound on that. You own that. And this is another big mental model for founders is I know that you want the whole market and you've pitched to the VCs and your employees that you're going for the whole giant market and you're going to be a billionaire someday. However, that's, let's say, the convertible, the beautiful sports car convertible that you're pitching to everyone. But you actually have to build a skateboard to begin with. You have to build a little tiny thing. It's transportation. It doesn't look anything like the car that you've pitched to people, but you have to love the skateboard. You have to get up every morning, loving the skateboard when you are in the skateboard phase of your business. And so, yeah, you can pick a little tiny niche, but you have, to, you have to love it and you have to make it into a white hot center. And if you're not in a white hot center, then you have to broaden out, see where the energy is, find the energy, narrow down, focus. And then later that white hot center will bleed out into other areas and then you can build a
0: big company. Other than Amazon, do you have an example that comes off the top of your head of, of a company that may have started with something more specific than people know it for? Yeah, I mean, obviously,
1: eBay, Fiverr. Look at uh, Uber. They started with black cars, and then they got broader. I mean, pretty much everybody.
0: <laughs> and then you have marketplaces like a Goat that started out specifically with, I think, Jordans and basketball shoes, and they brought in other shoes. Now they're in streetwear and t-shirts and jewelry and baseball cards as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, eBay
0: started with Pez dispensers or whatever. And I mean, everything starts small. So we've talked about how to get a marketplace off the ground. I want to dig into the economics and I'm wondering James, if you can explain what factors go into determining the take rate or the vig, or the commission that a company can charge. So off the bat, I mean, what, what's, what's your take on take rates? How do they evolve over time?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a big issue and it's often changes over time as the seasons of the, of the marketplace move. You have to change the rake and essentially, if their alternatives are much more expensive, then you can charge a higher rate. And if their alternatives, not, not competitors to you, but literally their alternatives, the substitutes are lower priced, then you have to charge a lower rate to get people involved. You, you very rarely charge both sides. You usually only charge one side just because it's hard to get anyone to make a purchase decision, uh, to click that, that buy button or pay button. Uh, and so getting two people to do it is hard. There are some companies that are doing it, but it's, it's pretty rare. What you can do, however, I mean, you know, look, I've had I've had people charging 10%, 7.5%. And I said, dude, you got to be at least at 15%. You could probably be at 18%. And then they were terrified. And then they moved it up to 15. And they moved it up to 18. And the the market ate it because their alternatives were much more expensive, you know, if they were non-digitized and they were off the platform. And so it ended up working out. In other cases, you know you end up charging you know 15% and they will disintermediate you if it's a service particularly with a particular individual and so in the end you have to charge like 30% for the first transaction and then you charge 4% or 6% for the subsequent transactions because it's a relationship between people that you've discovered on the platform and they'll just disintermediate you if you charge more than 4 to 6%. So we've seen that you know you might you might charge a low fee like i think ebay was famous for charging like 3.75% rake but then on top of that with ranking fees where they would rank you in lists or they would allow you to improve your your listing by making the name of it bold or by putting an orange background on it so people would notice it more they would drive up and they drove up i think they're Overall take rate was around thirteen uh, percent, up from almost four percent, with all the extra fees that they had on top of it. I mean, you you can give vendor, vendor financing, you can charge marketing fees, you can charge SaaS tools, right? Power seller tools, uh, other sorts of SaaS workflow tools. You can you know stick something onto the shipping fees, processing fees you can do demand generation for them where if they bring the customer to the marketplace then they pay 10% but if you bring the customer then they pay 30% cuz you're bringing them a new customer. So uh, and yeah and sometimes you can charge both sides. So a lot of these a lot of factors play into what that what that rate that rake or vig can be and each business is really
0: different and they're actually different over the course of of time. And when you say they're different over the course of time, is the trend usually, James, to raise it over time by adding more products and services? Or is it to lower it So you, because at scale, you want to get more of the other side on?
1: Both. Both. At different seasons, you're going to be lowering it to make sure that you grow faster. And then when you're growing too fast on one side, you have to cut it back. And these marketplaces are like flying a very complicated fighter, fighter jet they you're 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 moving the rake up you're moving the shipping feet down you you know for this source you're moving the rake up for that source you're moving it down like it's there are all sorts of uh, attributes you have to bring to your vig and you need
0: to make it variable and how do you determine which of those two sides you should charge it first is it in most cases obvious who it should be or is this a it is
1: yeah, if it's a supply side marketplace, then you should charge the demand because they're the ones who'll just show up. They're they're so in need of it. And if it's a if it's a demand side marketplace where if you get the buyers, then the suppliers show up, then you take a percentage of whatever they make.
0: And I wanted to talk about how different factors like maybe payment responsibility or demand generation play a part. Those would you say those are pretty standard considerations for increasing your take rate? Oh yeah. I mean, you,
1: you, need to, you always want to own the transaction and then you're going to be doing the processing fees and you need, to, you need to take your piece of whatever that is. If you have a marketplace where you're not actually owning the transaction, that's a problem. And then in terms of demand generation, I'm I'm careful with demand generation because if you make a promise to someone coming on your platform that you're going to get them more business with them just sitting there, that doesn't usually go very well. It means that you have to buy traffic off of Google or off of Facebook or you have to have a huge amount of natural traffic. And and so I just I I hate to make those promises. I, I want the I want the the attractor to the to the node and the network to be something that's basically free to us or zero marginal cost to us, like using our workflow software or, you know, having faster transactions or being
0: able to charge more or whatever. At the marketplace I work at, when we talk about what our take rate is and different products we'll offer, we always say in the sense of how do we get more in the way of the money? Yeah, there you go. And the the payment responsibility, what considerations go into that? I'd assume that if you're a founder or cfo you should also factor in what like fraud risk it, what goes along with with being the merchant of record there is that complicated
1: yeah and, i mean there's lots of chargebacks and there's fraud risks and there's customer service issues and all those things need to factor into what you need to charge in order to have a profitable business uh it's it's definitely not easy and certain things are much harder right i mean if you're if you're moving heavy equipment that's one thing if you're you know if
0: you're selling underwear that's a different thing so and is it possible then to charge too high of a take rate and go too far?
1: Uh, it is, but again, that's only temporary. You can always just bring it back down and you could, or you could add more value or by charging too much and people complaining in your organization, you know, freaking out, you might actually learn something about where you need to add more value so that you can charge a higher rate. you know, but, uh, you know, it's a dance. It plays out over time. I mean, you look at Amazon and, and eBay ebay had the market they had the network effect and then amazon comes along and says we have better seller tools power seller tools number one and number two we're just going to charge you a lot smaller rake and so over the course of you know six seven eight years everybody moved over to amazon and ebay got gutted but now in the last 18 months amazon is just ratcheting up all their fees and and so again if they were the cheapest, now they'll be the most expensive, and then something else will happen. And if there's a really good competitor, really... so things will things will change over time. It's not it's not a it's not a one-turn game, it's a multi
0: a multi-turn game. Right. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Reduce burn, extend runway, do more with less. Operational efficiency. These are all catchphrases that we know all too well because of the headwinds business leaders face in today's growth environment. Growth is now a battle, not a breeze. While teams are on the front lines fighting every day for top line yardage, there are hidden savings opportunities right beneath their feet. That's where Tropic comes into play. Their procurement platform brings order and process to a historically decentralized and chaotic business function, purchasing and supplier management. Tropic serves as the front door for procurement that your entire company will want to use. By combining intake forms, pricing benchmarks, approval workflows, and supplier management all in one place. Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. When you pour blood, sweat, and tears into revenue growth, doesn't it make sense to protect what you have fought for? Visit tropicapp.io metrics to learn how modern businesses are controlling spend to extend their runway. Your board will thank you. Your budget will thank you. Your bottom line will thank you. you're pretty active on Twitter. Do you remember when people were freaking out about the Airbnb cleaning fees about a year back?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the huge, right? They were hiding all the fees in there. That's, that's what you do when you're, once you've got a lock on the network effects and you do that and then people get pissed off and then they find the the competitors and then, and then that spurs, you know, booking.com to create a new section and then they'll go spend, you know, $500 million on advertising into that section instead of $120 million in that section. And then things shift and everybody,
0: everybody's always moving. It's like water. It's not, it's not like brick. And I think Uber is experiencing something similar, but it may be more because of, how cheap money was, but I mean, I was in Boston for a trip recently, and the Uber was probably 25% more expensive than a taxi. I thought three years ago, it would have been probably 50% cheaper than a taxi. Do you think that was just because a lot of these network effects are really subsidized at companies by cheap money that was flowing around?
1: Absolutely absolutely zero interest rates i mean how much did how much did uh, uber raise like 20 billion or something they were paying <laughs> they, they raised a lot of capital and they were paying for us to travel around and they had a problem with lyft because they didn't have a dominant
0: network effect but in most cities now uber does and and so they're going to be able to charge what they want and uh we were talking earlier about having a lean to it is uh, as another example is uber a supply leaning company towards the drivers
1: yes it is absolutely
0: <laughs> gotcha gotcha that's the um, big
1: issue, the churn and the cost of acquiring new drivers.
0: That's another thing that people forget to factor in, that there's a customer acquisition cost for both sides or both businesses, really. And that complicates how you look at the P&L and where you deploy capital. That's right.
1: That's right. And it changed from week to week and your employees don't like it because they were given marching orders and they wanted to know what their bonuses were going to be based on and all this crap. And if you want to work in a marketplace, you just can't live
0: that way. You have to be like water and something that i've noticed working at saas companies before is that it should get it it usually gets incrementally harder to get a net new customer because you get the ad- early adopters on you get the ones who learn about your brand and are more leaning into it or tech forward but when you have a marketplace i mean you can run into that on both sides i'm wondering if you know, it's common for marketplaces to see almost like diminishing returns are harder to get customers similar to SaaS, or is it more the opposite where you build up liquidity over time? And it's like the opposite effect of like each net new customer or supplier should technically be cheaper or easier to get because of that. You
1: start where it's hard to get the new customer. And then once it tips and you get really good liquidity, then it gets a lot easier for a while and your cat goes down. And people just start showing up and then you get a brand and people start talking about it in the press and people just show up. And so your CAC drops for a while, but then actually when you get to saturation or competitors start to respond or people add version, you know, sectors of their other product to compete with yours, then your costs go up. And so I do think that long term, you face the same challenges with CAC. Uh, on a marketplace but there is this honeymoon period when you finally tipped and you finally have liquidity sometimes sometimes four five six years in where you have this two or three year run where the cac is
0: is much lower than it has been but that will eventually peter out just because you'll you'll saturate the market and the next topic i wanted to touch on is classifications and so i'm going to take you back i think it was the the summer of 2022 and i was just being annoying on twitter and I, i shot you a message and i said james What's the difference between marketplace versus platform versus aggregator? I've read some stuff that will compare two or three models, but never all three being discussed at once. And you came back and you said, labels should be used to illuminate. We think the terms aggregators and platforms do not illuminate, but rather confuse your understanding. They are not things. Why isn't it, why can't my simple mind put these into simple buckets? Why is that a bad thing to do?
1: Okay, so what happened was about 10 years ago, There were some people who are doing analyses on businesses and they said, most people like General Motors make money by building products with scale defensibility. These internet businesses are different. They actually aggregate stuff and then through network effects, people stay there. This is a very simplistic way. This is like Marx saying, there's bad people who have money and there are poor people who have no money. It's just a simplistic way. So this word aggregator, generally came to mean things with network effects. But we've been looking at it where we actually now have 17 different network effects. So to call it an aggregator is just to tell people who don't really know much about anything, instead of it being about scale economics, it's about network effect economics. Okay, great. But that doesn't really illuminate. It doesn't help operators operate their businesses. And so we don't use the word aggregator. We avoid that semantic. We avoid that sort of the way they've formed language because we don't think it helps what we've done is we've looked at it and said no there's a marketplace two-sided network effect you know which is what we're familiar with with a craigslist or a or an ebay or amazon marketplace and then you've got a platform two-sided a two-sided platform network effect which is basically ios microsoft os where you've got a software layer that people actually have to build into and so it's much harder for them to multi-tenant. It's much harder for them to build for more than maybe two, like Android and, and iOS. They, they're not going to build for a third. They're just not going to do it. And so once once you once you have one of these operating systems or these platform, we call it a platform network effect that people have to build on. I don't have to build for Amazon Marketplace. I could sell it in Target. I could sell it in Walmart. I could sell it on Amazon. I'm just you know building a, a wallet, let's say. But I'm not building it into the Amazon marketplace. But if I want to build something for iOS, I have to build it in. That makes it a platform where I'm, and I as a user get a lot of value out of this platform, right? Whereas I don't get that much value out of Amazon marketplace. Like I literally just a pay button and then the thing gets sent to me. Like all the value is coming from the product itself and the box it came in. And so these are differences between a, a two sided platform network effect and a two-sided marketplace network. And when you look down at the differences between them, you as a founder, as a CFO, or whatever, can actually start to discern different differences, and you can make better decisions about your business. But if you talk about aggregator businesses, it doesn't help you make decisions. And so that's why I don't use the word aggregator. So I, I, aggregator is like in a different world. That's like Star Trek. That's like, that's its own world. But in the world where we actually elucidate and sort of break out what the different network effects are, that's the Star Wars world, that's its own world. We just Don't We don't talk about the Klingons in the
0: Star Wars world. (laughs) The example I always go back to, though, is I remember Paul English, the founder of Kayak.com, was on Guy Raz's podcast, How I Built This. And he described it as, hey, we were so efficient and had so, so much revenue per head when we IPO'd because we were this thin UI UX layer. We were an aggregator that didn't have to take on payment responsibility, and we were basically passing leads. I mean, that doesn't... Feel like an aggregator? What would what would you call that? That's just a marketplace. That's a two
1: sided marketplace. The the word aggregator refers to all sorts of network effect businesses that that these guys who are writing about this stuff are talking about. It's like they're they're not specific. He used the word aggregator, but yes, he aggregated a lot of the supply and created a marketplace. It's you know, but to call Facebook an aggregator, I mean, it doesn't help you understand the different network effects of Facebook and how they've built their business. And so he can use the word. It doesn't mean that. It, it it doesn't mean that that word that he used that Paul used was mapping to the word that you know Chaudhary is using when he talks about aggregators or whatever. Like that's just it's just a it's just it's it's like
0: the Baltics you know anyway. It's just not a great semantic area to be in. Ben Thompson writes a lot about aggregation theory and aggregators, but I think that's also a totally that's a different thing. That's a different thing than Chaudhary's like aggregator all,
1: all network effect. Business. Look look, these guys make their living by coming up with phrases writing papers writing books giving speeches and using words to try to help people think things through that's it that's so he's so chattery and the rest of them have come up with these words like aggregator to try to sound like and my point is look I've looked at their stuff I've read it all I don't think that it helps what I think helps is breaking things down to these 17 network effects maybe there's 18 19 we keep discovering them and I think that uh, strategic you know aggregator theory is
0: is a very different thing it's just the same word and so just don't be deceived it's not So I'm going to ask about platforms then. Would it be fair for me to call Patreon or like an OnlyFans a platform, not a marketplace? It's interesting. It's a good question.
1: And I would answer that the way I've never, I'm an investor, an angel investor in Patreon. But no, Patreon would not be a platform because I did not build that content specifically for Patreon. I actually built it for YouTube. I'm just getting paid for it on Patreon. Now, when it comes to OnlyFans, I've never been on OnlyFans and I've never posted any content on OnlyFans, so I don't know what the experience <laughs> of that is. But I would assume that if I take a video of myself naked in Bali or whatever they do on there, that I could use that same video elsewhere, and so I could multi-ten it pretty easily. I don't have to rewrite anything. I don't have to re. I don't have to redo the video
0: in the way I have to redo an app that lives on iOS versus Android. Got it. Okay. What about Substack? I'm a, I'm a Substack writer. A quick plug to mostly metrics. Yeah. I think uh, again, it's
1: the Substack. You could put the same content on your own blog. That's not on Substack.com. You could put the same exact content on Medium. I do create it though, using their tools. Okay. Does that matter? Not really. That's just a tool. Okay. That's just a tool. Like if, unless, unless they have some way of making you make that content, so you really can't post it anywhere else.
0: So unless it's the move kind of the dilemma yeah, here.
1: Yeah. And if there's something special that that platform offers to their users that, that they force you to build into your content so they can continue to maintain their uh, value, prop, value proposition to their customers, then unless there's that, then it's not a platform.
0: Got it. Yeah. My, my prior definition until this podcast of platform was that for a marketplace, you help drive demand for me. Whereas a platform, I bring my own audience or my own customers there, but you help me create something in a better format and give me a way to monetize it.
1: Yeah, no, like no I don't think I don't think that's accurate because if you look at iOS, they really help you. You can just type in something and f- wind up in your app. They're bringing you, they're bringing you customers as well. So I, I think if you really want to understand it best, I think if you talk to the professors at HBS and GSB, they will tell you that the best place to go is to the NFX website. And we've got an article called the Network Effects Manual. And it walks, it walks through all 17 of these and will give you language that I think will actually help you build better businesses. Um, you know, One of them is a two-sided platform network effect. One of them is a two-sided marketplace network effect. And it helps tease out all the differences so that you can make better decisions with your business. And I don't make any money by coming up with language. I just, I make money by investing in great companies. And I, I get my money 14 years from now. So
0: <laughs> you're a patient man, James, you'd mentioned iOS there. I remember last year, people got pretty up in arms about the app store fee. And there was a bit of a revolt they had on their hands. Do you, what do you remember what happened there and what drove that? Well, 30% is a lot. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And is that simply just a function of take rate? And in your eyes, was that exorbitant? Like how, how do people size that up? Cause I can, I can see iOS being like, listen we're the only game in town for this. Like we can charge a higher rate, but then I could see people who are trying to create a business being like, you, you got me stuck here. Facebook was charging 30% uh, to
1: sort of follow iOS. And you know, for some businesses, 30% prevents them from having a business. Right, that could be, that could be more than your margin. Uh, you know, because your CAC is so high, iOS is at once taking away your ability to, to see your uh, onboarding flow and your, your marketing flow. You don't get the data anymore. And now they're and, and they're persisting on charging their thirty percent. They've got some small places where they are, you know, relaxing that thirty percent, but in general, they're charging that. Um, and I think, you know, Epic Games is basically saying, you know, we should be able to have our own app app store on iOS and we shouldn't have to pay you thirty percent because once we get the customer, they're our customer. And we might we might pay 30% for the first time, but not for the recurring. So the question is, is it too much? And the answer is, I don't know. Uh, For some businesses, it's it's great because their renewal rates are twice what they would be if Apple didn't just renew the the annual subscription or the monthly subscription. And so they make a lot more money even giving away 30%. And for other cases, it makes it unfeasible to even have a business. And so, you know, for some people, uh, the 30 is going to matter more than others. And I I don't know the answer to it, but it does feel quite expensive,
0: uh, particularly because they are in such a privileged position along with Android. And James, I think they did change it to an extent. I think it's 30% for the first purchase, but when it comes up for renewal, like a year later, like if you had a medium subscription, I think they only charge you 15% after that. Yeah, stuff like
1: that. They're making small adjustments here and there to, um, to keep the government from... (laughs)
0: <laughs> it it does. It does smell like uh, antitrust monopoly to me.
1: They are definitely an antitrust monopoly. They are definitely a behemoth. They are definitely a monopolist, basically, along with Google Play. It's 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 it's, the, it's just the two of them. The oligopoly is very very strong, and those companies are minting dollars, and it is making it more difficult for
0: startups. You you did mention a, a couple metrics there. I wanted to touch on another one, specifically liquidity ratio. So s- traditional SaaS businesses don't have those. The one that com- jumps to mind for me is I remember that eBay said that, Hey, we really need like a one to five seller to buyer ratio. Are, are there any real world examples that you could use to, to help people understand how liquidity ratios work? Oh well,
1: yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess you know, Airbnb has their one to seven. You know, Uber has said it's somewhere between like one point four and one point six. eBay has said about the same. You know, look, I think in general, you you want to have sort of one and a half to two x the number of suppliers as buyers, in order for the buyers to come in and find what they're looking for very quickly and at at the right price. And I think that that is pretty true across the board with a lot of the b2b marketplaces i'm working with right now you often have these big pieces of equipment where there's basically one supply and then you'll end up with 16 different people on the demand side like bidding for it so it's quite different you know you can have in b2b you can have you know like one to 20 one supply to 20
0: buyers and still have a stable highly liquid market so it's 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 all over the map something that i ran into when i was working on my startup is platform risk. I discovered that firsthand. So I was hacking the supply side by working with three like booking systems that had all the suppliers hooked up to them. So like a Fair Harbor, a Peak, a ResD. How do you coach your companies around that? Because it does allow you to quickly get one side up and running, but it can, it can kind of scare the shit out of you in the long term if you build your entire business around them. Yeah, you, know, you have to have a plan to get off of them uh, as soon as you decide there's a real business there. I mean, we
1: had Goodreads where they were using the book database of Amazon and then, Am- and then Amazon bought their two competitors and was threatening them And then they said, you have to sell to us or we'll kill you. And they said, screw you, we're not selling to you. And they said, well, fine, then you have to give us our database back. And they said, don't you pull it out immediately because our whole system will collapse and then you'll be a bad guy and all the book people are nice people. And they said, well, then you, you have 30 days. They gave them 30 days. And so the whole company stopped what they were doing and they just went and created a big database that they cobbled together that was sort of 95, 98% as good. And the system went down for a couple months while the data reset, but they didn't lose the company. And so you have to be ready. I mean, Zynga had to figure out how to get off of Facebook. I mean, uh, Craig's, you know, Airbnb had to get off of Craigslist. So you- you have to you you often want to use these platforms distribution uh, but you have to have a plan from day one about how you are going to get off of them and you have to tell your people on your team guys i know that you're spending a lot of time figuring out how to get all that right data or the traffic off that platform but this isn't our business this is just temporary and it's hard for them to be excited about it every day if they think it's just temporary but you have to convince them to be excited and do the work until and get the leverage get the acceleration but then you have to get off it's hard. And some businesses don't survive that that getting off because the cost is too high or the volume is, is too low once they get off.
0: Yeah, and what do they say? You can't go around it, then you got to go through it. I mean, usually that involves, right? Like you have to compete with them then, that partner that you're relying on.
1: That's right. And, and, and it was easier you know, when Airbnb was starting in 2007 or eight, it was a lot easier to get traffic off of other platforms than it is today because those platforms were just getting going themselves and they hadn't really optimized their revenue streams. They hadn't blocked up all the ways to get traffic off of them. And so now that we're in the late stage, we're in the sort of late stage startup industrial complex, You know, there's just a ton of incumbents who are just in your way asking for their toll because they got there first.
0: Yeah. Everybody wants a toll. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how that's their business. Um, We talked about LTV to CAC, but what we didn't bring up is the LTV to CAC trap. So I'll give you an example. In my business, we, we fell into this where it cost a lot of money to get someone to buy a tour. And then they would only go on vacation maybe once a year. So they would have to remember us. And the average ticket price was $80. The average number of tickets was three. And then you multiply that out and we get 20% of it. And so the ticket size wasn't large enough to cover the customer acquisition cost if you had to keep reacquiring the customer. And in order to do that, you may not actually go to, you know, Tampa for every vacation. So do you have a lot of companies that run into this LTV to CAC trap? And I guess the derivative of that question is, do you know right off the bat? Or is this something that like you discover, unfortunately, later?
1: A venture capitalist like me who sees like whatever thousands of deals a year and invest, has invested in hundreds. Yeah, we can see it right away. You can smell it real quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you just look at the frequency, you look at the AOV, you look at the rake. And I don't ask about LTV and CAC much anymore. I just ask for payback period.
0: Gotcha. That's good.
1: Because your payback period, if you're spending $80 to get 48 and then you have to wait another year, year and a half, and only half of them will come back to
0: you, then that means that your payback period is going to be about three years. You just did it right there. Yeah, because the average ticket size is 240 bucks, 20% per ticket. Yeah, that, and it's hard It's hard to do the maths there
1: you can see this right away which is why you know every marketplace is different it's so interesting there's there's like a hundred rules and they all get applied differently in each different marketplace but you know that's why you've seen you know i'll give you an example like two good marketplaces are ones that are high aov like airbnb even though they're relatively low frequency and poshmark which is very high frequency. People are on that app five, six times a day. They're buying two items a week. And the ticket for the AOV is like $44. But the margins are really high, like 20% on that. And the person selling it is making a lot of money off it because you know it weighs like two ounces and they sell it for $44. And those businesses are both good businesses. One's got high frequency and low AOV and the other's got high AOV and low frequency, but you have
0: to be outside a certain boundary layer in order to have the combination of those two. Can you think of any companies that are lucky enough to be in that Goldilocks top right quadrant where it's high frequency, high ticket price?
1: I mean, booking.com is the closest thing. Airbnb is probably the closest thing. Let's see what else. You
0: know, if you look at video games,
1: you notice that companies like, you know, businesses like Mafia Wars ended up being high AOV, high number of users, high frequency. Whereas Farmville, Farmville was high frequency, low AOV. uh, And the game company that I built, Dragons of Atlantis, we were low numbers, high AOV. And all of those businesses worked, but Mafia Wars worked best because they were both high in both categories. That's awesome.
0: What other metrics do you track pretty religiously, James, when you're looking at businesses with network effects? It's just retention. Yeah, it's all about retention at the end of the day.
1: That's it. That's the only thing that matters. I mean, if you think about, the, you know, remember, viral effects are not network effects. And I say this twice a day, every day for the last 15 years, and still I find most people don't get it. A viral effect is where your current users get you new users for free. There's a playbook. There's playbooks around that. That's one thing. That's a viral effect. A network effect is where you get retention. You get retention. It's not new users. It's retention of users, the opposite. Okay. So network effects are about retaining people and they retain because
0: they can't get the value anywhere else that they can get from you. So they never leave. I think Blue Apron had a hard time with that. I remember seeing, you know, the people are going to be like, this guy's describing a chart where you know, the line you want it to flatten out as fast as possible versus going down on the retention. But in the, the, I remember it was compared to Netflix's, which like it, it, it it evens out real quick, whereas blue apron, it just kept going down to like 40% and then got, yeah,
1: that's right. When I was, when I was running my companies, people asked me, well, what's your job? And I said, I'm a triangle chart reader. (laughs) What's that? Well, you know the cohort analysis. So you you're oh, talking yeah. about one retention <laughs> yeah. curve, but you know those triangle charts, right? Where they show you month, you know, month by month cohort. Or yeah, week yeah, week I know exactly what retention. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah it's like eight like, boxes, set boxes yeah. down. They say, What's your job? And they said, No, 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 really, really. What's your job? I said, Okay, really, I'm an email subject line writer because if I can get that open rate to 42% versus 23%, I have a business. And if I don't, I don't have a business. So, you know, so and, and why, why do I need the email to work? Because I need retention. Same reason I'm reading the cohort analysis is retention. And network effects gives you retention. And so when you think about defensibility, there's an article on NFX called, you know, defensibility brings the most value for founders. And you should read it. It's like, it basically goes through all the things people think are defensible. Um, And we don't like the word moat because that also doesn't really help you. But anyway, defensibilities come basically in four flavors, network effects, embedding, scale, and brand. And for a startup, you can really only get the first two. You don't have scale and you don't have brand yet. So you need to figure out how to get network effects to get defense, you know, retention and then embedding. If you embed your software like Oracle does in you in somebody's business, like they can't rip you out. Like what are you going charge them 25% more next year? They're not going to rip you out. They're just going to pay it. Right. The guy will retire before they rip you out.
0: I, I like to joke that if you buy NetSuite, you have a better shot of replacing the office carpet and taking that out.
1: That's a great, that's a great way to say it. I like that. I might borrow that. So, Uh, we call that embedding. And that means you're just going to get recurring revenue every year. It's defensibility. They don't, you know, you look at your cohorts, those triangle charts look great when you've embedded your
0: software into their workflow and they are making money using your software. James, you've been generous with your time. I'm going to take us quickly into what I call our long ass lightning round. So the first question I want to ask you is, can you give us an example of something you've ever messed up on the job in your career before? We're, we're all imperfect humans so many things the biggest mistake i've
1: made in my career is i got into healthcare information technology so i wanted to use the internet to help cure healthcare in the united states and so i raised six i raised 68 million dollars for a company called jiff and we sold it seven and a half years later for 144 and it was a disaster i mean such a waste of energy and time and money between 2011 and 2018 when so much else was going on in the internet and, and technology. And I just, I I got myself stuck in this corner of the world where you're just, your energies are just going to be dissipated onto these incredible incumbents who will do everything to stop you from making any changes to how they make money. So, uh,
0: that was the biggest probably mistake I've, I've made in my career. I don't, I don't recommend it. Thanks for sharing that. So you invest in a lot of software and tools, but I'm curious what tools you use internally to run your business day to day, what, what does your tech stack look like?
1: We build our own stuff. We've got a team of engineers at NFX that help us build our internal and external tools. I don't know if your listeners have ever been on Signal.NFX, but that's sort of the home for all the VCs. There's about 31,000 uh, VCs on there now who have profiles. That's a tool that we build. Uh, we build a thing called BriefLink, which allows you to pitch uh, investors uh, quicker, or better with, and than then Docsend and other things. It's free, free tool. All these tools are free. And then we build our own internal CRM. We build our own internal Facebook for our portfolio companies. We do our own sort of AI development and and whatnot. So that's our stack is is our own thing. And then we use Google, (laughs) Google Suite, Google, Google Mail. And it's pretty simple.
0: Last one I got for you. So we do have a lot of CFOs in the audience. You've gotten to work with a lot of them over the years. I'm curious, what do you think of the qualities that separate the good CFOs from the great ones? Flexibility. How so?
1: Well... A lot of the CFOs that haven't worked out have been ones that seek to get their power through rule creating. This is good. This is spicy. More lawyery uh, and say, we can't violate this. We can't violate that. I invoke the, the gap regulation 2021 <laughs> that we can't, we can't go into that business because of this recognition problem that we're going to have in terms of when we recognize the revenue, blah, blah, blah. And those people don't last long. Uh, it's the ones that are flexible and are like, yeah, let's see how big we can make this thing and let me mitigate our risk here's our risk uh in doing this Um, and if if i see the risk increasing i will let you know and it might be that we have to change something later on but we'll we'll get to that even if this is a business or not you know if this new business line works then we'll deal with it but right now we don't even know if it's a business line it might blow up and it probably
0: will so let's just get going go team you know there's flexibility in the cfo I like that a lot. I've never gotten that answer. I'm I'm totally stealing that. And that resonates because the CFO does have to assess risk, but as long as everyone agrees they're comfortable with a certain level of it, like otherwise you're not gonna have a business. Like that that's why there are returns because you undertook something to a degree that's risky. James, this this has been a pleasure in a masterclass in network effects. If people want more James or NFX, anything you want to plug before we go? no just go to nfx.com go to
1: signal.nfx.com there's super useful tools that's why we publish it i'm glad you made use of it and i hope others do
0: thank you Sarah. appreciate it all right take care roll the credits producer natalie run the numbers as part of the turpentine podcast network it is produced by natalie torn and edited by justin golden album artwork by some ai thing yelling an intro by fat joe if you made it this far please give us five stars i really need this